Welcome to Propel, a podcast by Fellowship Pacific to propel you and your ministry forward in the mission God has for you. I'm your host, Jessica Powell, and in today's episode, I had the privilege of sitting down with Jay Kim, author of the book, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. We talked about our digital culture and why we need to be careful, thoughtful, and intentional about making sure the way we use and leverage our digital technologies is contributing to our mission and not actually working against it without us even recognizing it. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Jay Kim. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Propel Podcast. I am so glad that you are joining us today for what is sure to be a fascinating conversation about digital culture and the church. Uh, You know, of all the changes that have been forced upon us during this COVID pandemic, probably the one that is most universal has been the immediate shift of almost everything in our lives to being online in some form or another. Uh, And of course, our churches and ministries are no exception to this. Uh, In the last seven months, we have seen almost every single one of our churches go online with their worship services and their ministries. Uh, And it's been a really good thing. It's provided us the opportunity to still connect and and engage in mission together, even though we're choosing to stay apart, to stay home, uh, out of love for our communities, to love our neighbors and protect the people, uh, especially the most vulnerable people in our communities. Um, But as the pandemic keeps dragging on, and even as we start to hopefully move out of it sooner or later, it is important that we make sure we're actually assessing the digital methods that we're using and asking ourselves if how we're using them is in line with our mission. So to talk about this, I am so pleased to welcome Jay Kim. Jay is the lead pastor of teaching at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley of California, a teacher in residence at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, and the author of the book, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Jay, welcome. Thank you for coming uh, on the podcast. Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, excited for the conversation. Yeah, well, we're happy that you're having it with us. And I just gave that like super high level bullet points, like the title of what you do. But I know, you know, that's not the full descriptor of who you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What do we need to know about you? Yeah, well, not much. I'm pretty boring, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah, I've been in local church ministry for uh, full time for about 17 years and uh, worked with students for, for many years and college students and then was a church planter for a little while uh, and was a teaching pastor. And now I, I like you said, I serve um, as the lead pastor of teaching at a church called Westgate, which is a uh, uh, was before COVID a multi-site church here in uh, the Silicon Valley. Now we're just one site, as is everybody online, right. you know. And yep. um, yeah, and then I I actually served several years uh, full time on staff at a church just thirty minutes from here called Vintage Faith in Santa Cruz, sleepy eclectic little beach town. Um, and then left that role to come to Westgate, but I still serve at Vintage as a teacher in residence, which essentially means that I help them shape teaching series and. I'll go teach there a um, handful of times a year. And uh, so, yeah, it's a blast. And uh, I'm a husband and a dad. We've got um, my wife, Jenny, and I have two little kids, five and two. And we're just trying to navigate, you know, the COVID world with two littles is uh, yeah. unique, challenging and fun. <laughs> Working at home with kids at home? Has that been part yeah, of your life? Well, well, 
Yeah, it's weird. I uh, I come into the office most most days. I live really close to the office. Um, our staff, uh, there are very, very minimal staff in the office, but, hmm. but I come in regularly. It's tough to work at home with the kids. Uh, but my wife, who is a high school teacher, she's 100% working from home. Oh, and, my uh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so teaching high school digitally while parenting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Blessings on your wife. Totally. Yeah, I don't know how she does it. It's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. Um, so you wrote a book called Analog Church. I, I have to ask, how, what, like, what, what leads a pastor living in basically tech central? All of yeah. the big companies are there, right? Am I? Yeah. So That's what amazing. was it? What, what led you to be thinking about this topic and then write a book on it? That's a great question. Uh, and I think you sort of alluded to a part of the answer, which is that I've grown up, I've spent my entire life here. I, I never left. <laughs> um, and by here, I mean the Silicon Valley, uh, which is uh, the epicenter of digital technology, you know? And, you know, there's digital tech companies all over the world, obviously, but. The main campus of Apple is a 10 minute drive from my front door. The main campus of Google is a 15, 20 minute drive. Facebook is a 25 minute drive. And then there's, you know, startups left and right. I mean, I go out my front door and it's just everywhere. So this is, and continues to be in many ways, still uh, the epicenter, you know, the place out of which digital technology is, is essentially birthed, you know, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And I think that landscape is changing, obviously, you know, as people go more and more remote, it seems like companies are spreading out uh, a little bit broader, geographically speaking. Um, but still, you know, it's undeniable that the ethos of the place I call home, a big part of that ethos is driven by digital technology and more importantly, the values of the digital age. And so as a church leader and as a pastor, you know, I, I really didn't think much about it until probably six, seven years ago. Um, up until that point, I was just a fan, you know, I was just a fan of digital technology. I was like, this is great. Yeah. Look at my new iPhone. And it's so much better than my previous. Um, and I still am in many ways. I'm so grateful for, for digital technologies, uh, especially now during, during COVID. But uh, about six years ago, seven years ago, um, I, I began to sense uh, viscerally that um, our ecclesiology was being uh, affected and subverted in some ways by, by our sort of reckless, what I would categorize as often reckless leaning into anything mm -hmm. and all things digital, you know, um, I just, I, and this is not, this is self-indictment. I, I found myself in ministry constantly on the hunt for the latest and greatest and asking the question, how can I leverage the newest thing, you know, uh, digitally speaking, um, to further ministry and to further our reach and our impact and all of these sort of cliche words yeah. we use in church leadership these days. And those, those words are not bad, you know, there's a lot of good to it. But uh, as I thought more about it, and as I began doing some reading for the first time about six, seven years ago, not, not reading uh, from like Christian leaders or Christian books per se, but just reading from thinkers at large who were 
thinking critically and speaking critically about sort of the dark underside of digital technologies mm. and their subversively formational uh, impact on who we are as human beings and on human experience. As I started reading some of the literature, it became pretty clear pretty quick. Oh, there's like real, there's, there's a true undeniable intersection between some of these ill effects of the digital age and our ecclesiology, the way we understand what it means to be the church. And in particular, the way we understand what it means to follow Jesus together as his people. And um, so that led me down, you know, I wasn't thinking like, I'll write a book about it. I just kept reading and researching, which led to lots of conversations with uh, our church leadership, as well as church leader friends, as well as just people who were a part of our congregation. And it, it really became uh, undeniable that this was an important, uh, an important thought, right? That we had mm -hmm. to think more deeply about how digital culture, digital technologies might be influencing and impacting us and undoing some things that are really important in us. So uh, that's where it came from, you know, the intersection of my geography, just the fact that this is home and I've been surrounded by this stuff. Most of my family and many of my close friends still to this day work in digital tech, you know? Um, oh, fine. So, yeah, I'm just surrounded by it. And again, uh, it's not monolithic. I'm not saying, you know, become a Luddite and, or Amish right. and throw away your computer or whatever. There's a lot of benefits. We just have to be tempered and thoughtful, I think, in how we engage. Right. I mean, I've heard, we are also, um, well, we're big Apple fans in our family, I, I will yeah. say. So I've, I've uh, heard lots from the Steve Jobs biographies and such. And I know that there's even in the, in the tech companies, you hear of, of, people like Steve Jobs saying they won't let their kids use, use these devices that they've created and such. So it's um, even, I'm sure even where you are, that thought still exists and the, the awareness of the concern is there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, there, that's a fascinating paradox. You, you cited it, but that's right. That's a very public uh, thing. Steve Jobs very publicly stated uh, that he didn't allow his kids to use the stuff he made. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of that has to do with the fact that he was acutely aware of their um, uh, addictive uh, mm -hmm. nature. You know? and, and I think most of us, if not all of us, can relate because when's the last time you pulled out your phone and opened it up without really having any good reason to pull out your phone and open it up? It's just like oh, this, like... Like right before this call. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. It happens all the time. Still happens to me, you know, and I've written yeah. a book about it. So we, we just have to be aware of those things. And uh, yeah, that's where the book mm -hmm. came from. Wow. And then, so I'm sure you probably get asked this all the time, but so you write this book and then it ends up getting released right <laughs> as the entire world is shutting down. Like, I'm sure that was just a ton of fun doing a, I mean, doing a book release just in general in a pandemic. I can't even imagine, but um, you know, yours is on needing real people and places when we can't see real people. But do you think in any way that, um, like do you, is there any way that it was actually kind of a perfect time for a book like this? Like I know that that's I think a big part of when I uh, saw, you know, I saw it listed in, a, in a, a list of titles. I was trying to figure out what am I gonna read next? And 
And it really caught my eye, I think, because of the season that we were in. I was like, wait, everything I'm hearing right now and everything in my inbox is like, the future of the church is online, let's do this. And then I'm like, analog church, wait. Like, <laughs> it, and, and so I was like, I wanna read this, this is different. Do you think yeah. that there is that awareness because of how we're yeah. immersed right now? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it was it was wild. You know, the process of writing a book is interesting because it, for me, it was like an, a nearly two-year process. So mm -hmm. the moment I signed the book deal to actually releasing the book out into the wild, it was almost two years, like 20 months. So, <laughs> you know, it had, we had the release date locked in almost at least six months before it released. So you're talking about way back in September of 2019, long before we knew that our entire yeah. nation was shut down, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic. So we, I, we had conversations, the publisher and I had conversations like, what do we do? You know, how, how do we do this? And, and we were having those conversations like three weeks before the release of the book. I distinctly oh remember getting the email, uh, on like March 13th or 14th or something like that, saying that um, our church was going to have to cease all in-person gatherings, knowing that in like two and a half, three weeks, I was about to release a book that was arguing for in-person everything, you know? And oh, um, my goodness. So it was, yeah, that was challenging. But I will say this now, seven months, you know, six, seven months after releasing the book. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it was like perfect timing, but I will, I can certainly say I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the timing mm. because if there was anything I would want to say in this season, it's probably what I say in this book, right. not because we're able to do the stuff, you know, much of the stuff that I, I suggest in the book, but because I think what COVID has revealed to all of us is that while digital technologies are incredibly beneficial, I mean, where would we be right now without these technologies. But at the same time, it's to me, it feels undeniable that most, if not all the people I talk to express this innate longing and desire to be able to uh, exchange their embodied presence with one another. You know, yeah. it's extremely convenient to do church on a screen. There's something in almost all of us that says, I'm grateful for this, but I long for more. And yeah. I, I'm hopeful that this book gives language to, to some of that longing. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it was strange to release it now, but I'm grateful yeah. we were able to. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. And because I, I agree, we need to have these conversations. And I think they're, uh, um, you know, I've compared it to when, I, when we go on vacation and we're just immersing ourselves in junk food. And by the time it's done, I, I am... I do not like vegetables, but when I'm finished coming back from vacation, I'm like, where is there anything green? And I think in some yeah. senses, we've almost been so immersed into this digital world that we've been told, as you said, even by secular thinkers that have yeah. been warning us about for, for a long time. And now we're all the way in it and that's all we got, or that's, you know, we're starting to in some places come out now, but um, you, it does, it awakens that like, oh no, this, I need more yeah. than this. Um, so, you know, you, you, you kind of alluded to this already, the, the digital culture, the values of the digital age. Um, wondering if you could even kind of talk about that a little bit and like, what, what is that? What is digital culture? And um, 
what specifically, I mean, you, you alluded to how it's forming ecclesiology and that, like, what is it that we should be paying attention to and concerned about? Sure. Yeah, I think in some ways that is the primary or at least the first question we should be asking. Um, so I'll, I'll just try to go quickly here. I, I dive in much deeper in the book, but um, I argue that uh, the digital age is built on three primary values. And these values in and of themselves are not bad. They're actually um, quite beneficial. They've made our lives uh, convenient and comfortable in many ways. Um, so those three values I would suggest are speed, choice, and individualism. So in the digital age, if you think about, you know, the digital technologies that you use, why is it that every two years or every year there's a new model of everything? It's because things are getting faster. You know, the new iPhone doesn't ever come out and say, hey, you know what, this phone is much slower than your previous phone or, you know, uh, phone companies or whatever, they don't come out and they say, hey, you know, we, we had 4G, we're going back to 3G now. Like, you know, that's just not how it works. Everything's getting faster. So speed is a value. We want things faster and faster. Um, choice, right? Just think about, let's just go with the giant, you know, Amazon. I mean, you can, you can name literally anything, anything you can think of, anything that comes to mind. And I can go on Amazon or eBay or whatever right now, or any number of boutique, you know, online retailers. And I can find you dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of different options of that one thing that you're looking for, you know, be it a new, new pair of shoes or a crock pot or a phone or whatever, you know, it's just the choices are endless and they're endlessly increasing. Um, and then individualism. Everything about our digital experiences are growing increasingly curated to suit our preferences and personalities. And in fact, we don't even have to do the curating uh, ourselves anymore. Machine algorithms curate your digital experience to suit you. Um, I'm sure many listeners have watched the, because it's really popular right now, the Netflix documentary, um, The Social Dilemma. Yeah, you know? I just watched that this week. Right. So if you watch yeah. that, it gets into all of these values. But one of the fascinating things is the, the uh, documentary explains in great detail how these machine algorithms work and why they work the way they work to curate our digital experiences, to suit our personal preferences, um, essentially to keep us clicking and swiping and scrolling, right? Because that's essentially how they monetize uh, everything that they do. So speed, yeah. choice, individualism. Again, in and of themselves, not bad. Mm -hmm. However, what all of the literature tells us, what the Social Dilemma documentary tells us, and what our own experiences, when we sit down and really thoughtfully um, consider the ways we're being formed by our digital experiences, what all of these things tell us quite emphatically, in, in fact, is that these values have gone off the rails for most people, mm -hmm. that they have basically turned in on themselves. And when values go unchecked are, and are not held accountable, even good values can turn really vicious. That which was once helpful 
can become har harmful. That's true of anything, right? A hammer in the hand of a skilled carpenter is a great tool that can build, but a hammer in the hands of an unskilled or immature or angry or whatever person can be used to do great harm. And so it is with our digital technologies. And so I would suggest that these values because they've gone unchecked and have not been held accountable. And because we've sort of just um, leaned so hard and heavy into these things, they've turned in on themselves. So the speed of the digital age has actually made us incredibly impatient. All of the choices of the digital age have made us incredibly shallow. If you have an endless array of options, there's no reason to sink deeply into any one thing. Just move on to the next, the moment it doesn't you. And the individualism of the digital age has made us increasingly isolated. I mean, all of the statistics bear this out when it comes to mental health and feelings of depression and loneliness, that the lines are parallel with the rise of the internet age has come a rise in all of these things, isolation, loneliness, anxiety, depression, and all that. That's not an accident. So these values, speed, choice, individualism, they are forming us into an impatient, shallow, uh, isolated people. And the problem when it comes to our ecclesiology, and even more specifically, when it comes to our collective discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus, impatience, shallowness, and isolation stand in literal opposition to the values of discipleship to Jesus. Which, are, which is a patient work, it is a deep work, and it is a communal work. And so mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why, and maybe the reason why, we can't just thoughtlessly, carelessly use and leverage any and all digital technology that comes our way. We have to carefully think about on the other side of our usage and overusage of these technologies, what is it doing to us? How is it shaping us and forming us and in many ways unforming or deforming us from the life of following Jesus collectively as the people of God? Um, so there you go. That's kind of a big synopsis. Yeah. Big synopsis. Well, and, and that discipleship piece is literally our shared mission as the church to make disciples of of Jesus. And just as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot of, and, and I, you know, agree with when we talk about mission over method, um, you know, like our, we have our mission and, and we need to use whatever uh, tools we can to advance that mission. But almost what I'm hearing is that in this case, the method could actually be opposing the mission at times yeah, or when exactly used right. irresponsibly or thoughtlessly, not even irresponsibly, but without yeah. taking the time to, to really think about what is happening. That's exactly right. I think, you know, when we say the mission over the method, uh, philosophically, that's true. The method is not the thing that matters. It is the mm -hmm. mission that matters, absolutely. There was a 20th century um, cultural critic and philosopher named Marshall McLuhan, and he, he's famous for lots of things, but he's maybe best known for this idiom, uh, this phrase, this quote of his, where he said, he's, he's debunking, um, uh, he's basically debunking the fact that, you know, the mediums may change, um, but, but to use your language, the mission essentially stays the same. So I'm paraphrasing him, but he essentially would say, 
he didn't say this exact thing. I'm paraphrasing to suit our conversation. He would essentially say, actually, the medium or the method is the mission. Right. And what he meant, what he means essentially is that the way we express our mission affects the mission. Like the mediums we use um, affects whatever it is we are attempting or trying to do. And and I think that's a big part of what I'm trying to get at here is Mm -hmm. that of course, the mission is ultimately the most important thing and maybe the only important thing. But we, we would be naive to think that the methodologies and the mediums we use to accomplish that mission do not affect the mission. And I think one of the disconnects is that those who have the mission embedded deep inside of them, because the mission is so um, solidified internally, we assume that we can leverage any method and the mission will never change. And that's probably true in you as the bearer of the mission. Hmm. But if you think about the target audience, the people you are trying to serve or reach through the mission, right? If your mission is a particular people, by its very nature, what it means is that they don't yet, they do not yet have the mission, the ethos of that mission embedded in them. And so your expression of the mission actually matters incredibly because the way you express the mission is what they are going to take in and embed in themselves as the mission. So if our expression of the mission is laced with speed choice individualism, even though I know as a pastor and church leader that discipleship to Jesus is a patient work and it is a deep work and it is a communal work, if the way I express those realities, the mediums I use, if they are leveraged in a way that they are received by those I'm trying to reach and serve as a, a really fast, speedy thing, as, a, um, as one choice amongst many choices, and as a very individualistic experience, then their ingesting or intaking of the mission is different than what you're actually trying to communicate. Um, I don't know if I'm being clear here, but I think that's a really important piece to pay attention to. Right. So um, basically you're saying you're, you're, we're creating disciples. Yes, but not fully to, they're just going to keep coming. It's that, it's that saying of, um, you know, you, now I'm forgetting it, but what you're saved to is what you become like where, wherever, whoever it is, whatever kind of cultural environment, whatever that is that you meet Jesus, it's, that's kind of where you stay a lot of times. So if it is in this shallow, it's about me, it's about what I want, then you're more likely to stay in that rather than actually taking the deep road and the long, slow, arduous road that is true discipleship to Jesus. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. You said it well there. So, I mean, we are in a digital age. So when you talk about the people that we are trying to reach, Mm -hmm. for the most part, they're all online. And I I know that's one of the primary arguments when you hear things like you you have to go where people are and you have to meet them where they're at. Um, Like where, what would you say to that, I guess, is like, how do we reach people who are living in this place of, I don't have a lot, 
I don't have a long attention span. You know, it won't last more than seven minutes. And I want to do things when I want to do them and have it uh, individualized to me. You know, if we just say, nope, that's not what we're doing. We're only doing everything very long and this yeah. is what it is. You don't get to choose, you know, the, we're not going to reach them. Yeah. So how, like where, where do we do with that? That's a great question. I, so again, I, I am not suggesting that we get rid of digital technology or never leverage it. I think probably the best and most succinct way I could put it is um, by way of a metaphor. So in my house, you know, like most houses, I have a front door and, uh, and then I have a kitchen, dining area and dining room and a living room inside. The front door, um, there are certain people who just come to my front door and they stop at the front door. People like the FedEx delivery guy or the Amazon delivery guy or the mailman. They come to my front door, they drop off whatever package, I open the door, I wave a polite hello, say have a good day, thank you, and they say you too, see you later, and they move on. That's vitally important, right? Yes. And in fact, um, there are some people who, who don't linger at my front door, but they make their way into uh, my dining room or my living mm -hmm. room. These are family and friends, people that I want to uh, journey through life with, people I care about deeply, people who, who really matter to me, people to whom I matter. And for those folks, uh, here's what's really important to note about the metaphor they also come through my front door, right? Mm -hmm. When they enter my home, um, they enter through the front door. They ring the doorbell or knock on the door. I open it. And again, we exchange pleasantries. I say hello and welcome them in. And then at a certain point, they leave that front door and they make their way into much more intimate, much more familial, connective spaces like mm -hmm. the dining room where we break bread together or the living room where we sit and, um, you know, uh, share a drink and chat and connect and care for one another. And I think uh, very similarly, um, we, we can think of church in, in the same way. I would suggest that uh, digital spaces are like our front door. They're incredibly necessary because like you said, most of the people in our lives and in the world live, live there. They're out there. That's where they are. And so if we yeah. want to reach them, then, then we need the front door. We need, we need a very clear signpost that you can see from the street that mm -hmm. signifies and identifies for you where to go. So again, like for our church, long after COVID is over, we are going to continue to have a digital presence. We'll probably continue to have our service online somewhere because mm -hmm. that is our front door. And at the same time, we even now we say on our with our digital services, we will say, you know, we're so glad you're here. Uh, and if and when you're ready, I mean, we don't say this now because it's COVID, but after COVID, <laughs> yeah. we will say, you know, if and when you're ready, we would love to see you at one of our campuses. Here are our service times, and we'd love to meet you. And because we believe that following Jesus is a communal work uh, meant to be done shoulder to shoulder with others. And if you're watching from another part of the country or the world um, and, and you eventually get to the place where you're looking for a local community that you can really do life with, let us know if you have trouble finding one and we will try to connect you with some churches in your area.
So I think what I what I'm trying to trying to communicate is that front doors are important. Digital spaces are important. They're not going away. That is where people live. And so we need some signpost that tells people here we are and we would love to have you with us. Um, but the goal then is that uh, if they come to the front door enough times, at some point they feel comfortable enough to make their way into more intimate connective spaces like the dining room or the living room where we can really do life together. And I, I, would, I would suggest that those spaces are by their very nature analog spaces, spaces where we can exchange not only information the way we do online, but we can exchange our embodied presence and all that comes comes with that. Hmm. That's good. So it's, it's using that uh, kind of what we said earlier about how online kind of builds this longing for more for in person. Yeah. So it's saying you're, you're meeting us here. Now come meet us in person. Um, is there anything that just now I'm just this popped into my head. Anything that you would say is absolutely um, the most important that has to be analog. Like we talked to your, you, you mentioned ecclesiology and what is the church and, you know, like I, I've heard things like with COVID, you know, talking about, oh, we've watched another site and it's online. Like can a site or a church be fully online or what are those parts of church that need to stay analog but in, from what you've been thinking and, and researching and, and just, yeah, what, what you have to say on that. Yeah, I want to, you know, add a caveat here. I didn't get into it in the book. And if, there, if I have one regret, this is probably the one regret that I, that I wish I had thought about and written into the book. Yeah, I'm acutely aware that there are people because of circumstances for whom even long before COVID and after COVID's over, you know, there are folks who it's not physically possible and it's not physically wise or prudent for them to be in physical spaces with other people. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about those like the elderly, you know, yeah. there are those who are older who are, are maybe physically immobile or it's challenging for them to get from place to place. Um, and then there are folks who, who have other reasons, right, for, for not showing up into a particular place. So for those folks, I think digital technology, while it, you know, I would still say it, it, it isn't complete or whole in, in the deepest way, um, it's an incredible gift. Uh, it's an incredible gift that they can stay somewhat connected to their community. But even for those folks, and, and most of our churches have folks like that, you know, shut-ins and, and otherwise, who, for whom digital is the way. But even for them, I think as church leaders, we have to think about what are we doing to give them some sense of embodied presence, you know? Mm. Are there like visitations that we can make? I mean, that's kind of like a lost art. I remember growing up in the church, visitations was something that was like a a big deal, you know, in, in yeah. my church growing up. And it's not something that churches do as much anymore. And I think it's something we need to recapture. There are those who are really isolated and lonely and they're watching the services online and participating from home as much as they can. But man, even for them, like we, we need to at least give them the gift of embodied presence in some way, you know, some form or fashion. So, so I want to be, be careful here, you know, like it's not just like, yeah, it's totally digital just doesn't do it. It, it, it yeah. can, it can help. It's incredibly helpful in 
a lot of ways. But in terms of like overall, you know, this is going to sound like a cheap answer, but it's not. My answer essentially would be to say everything about Christian discipleship is at its finest and at its most essential core when it's embodied. Mm-hmm. Everything. Um, whether it's it's worshiping through song or uh, diving into the scriptures or listening and learning uh, via the sermon um, or community groups or life groups or whatever, you know, small group models, um, house churches, breaking bread together, sharing a meal, connecting that way, um, accountability groups, uh, service projects, going out and living on mission as we love our neighbors in our particular corners of the world. I mean, all of those things I would suggest are are essentially analog realities. You know, you have um, all of the one another's in the New Testament, right? Where yeah. the biblical writers talk about all these one another's, you know, love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, um, don't give up meeting together. Uh, break bread with one another, give to one another, forgive one another. All these things I would suggest are, some of them are maybe possible online, but I, I would say that they they are lacking online. Um, mm. And, you know, this is not just conjecture on my part anymore. What COVID has revealed to us is that most people feel this on a visceral level. There's a reason why most people in our churches, and I don't even know all of the churches that are represented, you know, in terms of those who are listening to this, but I don't even need to know because I think it's fairly universal. There is a reason why in all of our churches, there are um, a significant number, if not the overwhelming majority of people who say they can't wait for this to be over so that we can get back together. I mean, consider that. Because essentially through online experiences, they're still getting all of the content they would have gotten in person. We're still, most of us are still singing songs. Mm -hmm. We're still preaching sermons. We're even, many churches are still doing communion, you know, get your bread and your juice and take communion with us at home. And you can do that without ever getting out of your PJs or getting into your car. You don't have to get your kids dressed and fight with them to brush their teeth. It's so convenient. And yet, why is it that so many of us, if not most of us, are longing for the inconvenience? I can't wait till I have to fight with my kid to brush his teeth and get dressed and get in the car, check them in the kid's church, walk. You know, what? why is it that we long for that? It's because we viscerally understand that there Mm -hmm. is a seismic difference between digital experiences and the real thing. Right. Yeah. I remember uh, back in March um, when, you know, it was a very, very fast transition. It was, I think, like you said, it was like a Thursday or a Friday, at least here. Right? It was, I guess, different in different regions. But for us, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we can't meet this Sunday and everything was was switching so quickly. I remember one of the concerns I heard um, from a few different people and, and pastors you know, is kind of this fear of, oh, if we do this, if we have an online service, people will never come back. And I, I just think now we're seeing, yeah, that's not at all the case. Cause you're right. There is this, there's something missing when we're not with people. And, and we had one Sunday where we actually were able to have a couple of uh, families that are neighbors that we were, we've been kind of, you know, clustered with throughout all this. And we did you know, we watched the service together. And I remember when we started singing and just there were voices that were not my family 
like I almost burst into tears. It was so beautiful. And I hadn't realized how much I missed it. So I, I absolutely think you're right. Like having not either having pulled all of the churches, um, that would be my feeling as well as most people are saying, when can we go back? Yeah, we've had uh, in the last two months, we've had, gosh, let me do the number. We've done like 25 or 30 in-person outdoor masks on prayer and communion services and they've been limited to 60 people max because that's our county mandate or has okay. been that just changed but okay. um so in the last two months we've had like 30 of those in total the majority of them have been packed out with waiting lists and i've led several of those many of those uh, and i will say there has not been a single one i've led and i've led literally i think dozens um, there's not a single one that I've led where there hasn't been tears, you know, mm. there haven't been tears, particularly during the singing as they hear one another's voices in, in unison. And it's fascinating because these are the same songs we've been watching at home. It's not like we're singing some brand new song that's just like utterly moving in ways. Right. That never... These are just familiar songs that we've been sitting at home and listening to the band play and kind of humming along in our living rooms but there's just a different thing when you hear the collective uh, voices of God's people together. So that's just one example. So I can relate. Yeah. I can relate, Jessica, to, yeah. to that. Well, is there anything that you've found? Because sadly, it doesn't seem like we're super close to a lot of the restrictions being released. We're, we're hoping, but it could be a while still. Is, is there anything, you know, because you just mentioned these outdoor services, like, like, anything that's been working or that you've been trying to, to get some of that, what we're missing even while we're apart? Yeah, we've just been, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're just borrowing from other churches who are doing great things. And um, yeah, so we've just been trying to abide by our county's mandates, but doing, uh, we're just doing as much as we can while operating in accordance to public safety mandates. Yeah. And uh, so that's what it's meant for us is, you know, gatherings of 60 or less um, outdoor. Uh, the, the, the restrictions have loosened um, a little bit here where I live in the last week or so. So in, in a week or two, I think, they said they are going to allow us to begin gathering indoors. So we just made plans this morning. I had a meeting this morning um, to do more prayer services uh, indoors this time with a capacity of 100 because um, oh, wow. our numbers here are looking good. So we're going to start doing that um, yeah. uh, the first week of November during um, the elections down here in the States. <laughs> so that should, be, that should be interesting. But yeah, we're just, we're doing as much as we can. We've got some, some life groups, which are our small groups um, mm -hmm. that are meeting in backyards and in driveways and social distancing, but at least getting together in person. So, so yeah, I don't have anything great other than that, you know, just trying to do what we can within the restrictions uh, that serve, you know, public health. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of what we're all doing. And I, I love that we can share ideas and we don't need to reinvent, like you said, just borrow from each other, share ideas, what's working, what's not working, but um yeah, I love it. It's just always so important that we, I think kind of what 
I've been hearing you say this, this whole conversation, we pause and make sure that our great ideas are not racing us in a direction that we never intended to go. So I just think it's such an important conversation to have and um, really grateful to you for having it. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, I, so when, as I was kind of preparing, you know, to, to, to do this podcast, one of the things I kept or kept thinking about and it uh, was, there are some, I know there are some pastors for whom this whole thing of going online has not been, you know, they don't need to slow down. This has been like, what? I, I have to figure out how to use technology and digital. And I never, ever wanted to speak to a camera, but now I am. Um, and I uh, I was just thinking, wondering if there was, okay, imagining kind of getting to the fall and they're going, okay, I finally got my groove. We're figuring it out. Now I'm listening to this conversation and wondering, wait, like, was it even worth it? Is it worth all the anguish? Like, is there any encouragement you would have for um, <laughs> the churches that are kind of going, I'm, I'm just trying to catch up here. Hmm. Yeah. You know, when we look at scripture, particularly in the old Testament, there is this um, extremely common refrain command from God to his people he tells them over and over again to remember. Hmm. And um, there are so many reasons for that. But when I think about how that might apply to us today, I, I think in many ways, God is asking us to do the same. One of the effects of the digital age is that we have all become, in the words of C.S. Lewis, chronological snobs, right? <laughs> He coined that phrase chronological snobbery. And what he meant by that was uh, this idea that what is new is always best. And that um, the old is to be, um, you know, put out to pasture. And what is new, the latest and greatest really is the greatest. And while that is, I guess, sometimes true, there's a reason why God over and over again commands his people to remember to remember his faithfulness, to remember the long history of his goodness to them as a people. And I think that continues today. You know, we've been in COVID for seven months. So as a church leader, you've been struggling to figure this out and adjust to this new normal and um, trying to do church in a way that seminary or Bible college never, ever taught you how to do. And because, because of how upside down things have, have gotten in recent months, and because of how unexpected and um, novel all of this is, uh, it feels like these seven months have been seven years, you know, if not seven decades to some of us. Yep. Um, for some of us, it feels like it's the end. Like, <laughs> I'm like, is my church going to make it? Is this the death of yeah. my church? You know, and all those sorts of things, all those feelings. And the reality is there, there's 2,000 years of Christian church history that tells us that God is still good, he is still faithful, he's still in control, and that the church has withstood pandemics many times, that the church has withstood world wars and global catastrophes, 
The church has withstood seasons of economic turmoil and political uncertainty and unrest that were even more severe than what we are going through today. It doesn't feel like that because we're living in it right now. But I think one of the most important things we can do right now is to remember, right? That as church leaders, what we are a part of is not just our, the church localized, although we are a part of that. That's the, our local churches is, is the community and congregation we've been called to. But as a part of a local church, we are swept up in a much larger, longer, longstanding narrative. The history of um, the church at large, the universal church. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has withstood, you know, storm after storm, cultural wave after cultural wave. And so no matter how much you feel like you're drowning, no matter how much you feel like you're doubting, um, just remember. Remember that God is good and he's faithful and he has brought the church through seasons like this many times before. And he will bring us through this season as well. And our primary calling is not to fix the problem or to solve the issues or to, um, you know, use our ingenuity and our cleverness to uh, bring this to a resolution. Our primary calling is to pray, to seek God, and to be faithful, you know, step by step. There's a reason why his word is a lamp unto our feet and not a flashlight. It's not just because there weren't such things as flashlights when the poet wrote that psalm. It's because lamps only light a few steps ahead of you. And as much as we would like God to give us a flashlight to flash 20 steps ahead to know exactly where to go, um, giving us that sort of insight would rob us of living the exhilarating life of faith, which is to hope for that which um, we do not yet have, right? As the New Testament mm -hmm. writer reminds us. And so just know that the uncertainty is exactly the way God intends to lead us, to not give us answers, but to teach us how to cling tightly to him and to be faithful every step of the way. So that would be my encouragement. Just be faithful and have confidence that God is good and is faithful in return and always has been. And we have um, two millennia of Christian church history and many thousands of years of God's history with his people long before that, um, that tell us we can take confidence and take courage and take heart in knowing that he is with us. He has not left us and uh, he will see us through. Yeah. Amen. Uh, that lamp versus flashlight. I love that. I mean, I don't love it because I would prefer to know 20 steps ahead but um yeah it's it's true i have to, we have to depend more on him with the lamp that's a beautiful picture thank you for that um well this this has been so good i am i am so grateful for you coming on before you go we have two questions that we we um we like asking all our our guests so i want two quick questions for you um because our at Fellowship Pacific, our vision is to innovatively develop relationships and resources that propel all our churches to be accountable to their gospel mandate. So my question would be for you in your own ministry, uh, where, where have you found the importance of relationships, which is 
very in line with our whole conversation, um, but just specifically in your own leadership. And are there any resources that are especially helpful to you right now? Yeah, I mean, relationships are everything. And I say that as, uh, as an introvert who um, <laughs> naturally, on my, based on my personality, I don't uh, seek a lot of interaction. I'm not really like, you know, big party, lots of people in a big room. And, you know, I'm, I'm just not that guy. I would much prefer a book, you know, and my chair and yep. a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and just quiet, you know, that's my personality. However, um, relationships are, are everything, particularly for church leaders and for pastors. You know, I have a, a small group of four guys that I connect with over lunch. I mentioned them in the book. I connect with them. They're all church leaders, passionate followers of Jesus. And we grab lunch at least twice a month, um, usually at our favorite Thai spot, although it's been to go these days because of COVID. Um, and we just share life together. And, you know, for people who are like sort of type A drivers, live off of task, li task lists and calendars, that's me. Uh, that can initially be really challenging because it's hard to quantify um, the win or the, you mm -hmm. know, or the accomplishment when really you're just sharing a meal and connecting relationally. It doesn't, feel at least initially like it amounts to anything that you're accomplishing. Uh, but in the long run, what I found is that anything and everything beneficial to the church that I'm able to accomplish, so much of it is intertwined with the vitality and joy I receive and the energy, the energizing effect of knowing that I've got a group of friends who love me and care for me, not because of what I can do, but simply because of who I am. And um, man, that, that matters so much. So yeah, relationships. There's, there's a, also a Tuesday afternoon uh, call with senior leaders of churches in the Silicon Valley that started at the beginning of COVID because we were all scrambling. We we're like, man, we got to get together and start talking. And, and that's grown. And there's like 30, you know, church leaders on that call awesome. every Tuesday. And we pray for each other and we share what we're learning and what we're struggling with. And incredible stories have come out of that. Uh, stories of churches coming around other churches that are struggling financially, stories of uh, some church leaders, you know, paying for the church leader of a small church to go on vacation with his family for a week because he needed a reset and rest. Oh, wow. and incredible stuff, right? So yeah. relationships in that way are, are everything. And I think we've got to be intentional about um, forming, forming spaces like that in our lives. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of resources, you know, the, man, there's, there's so much out there. I, I'll just cite a, f a few that, that come to mind for me that I've been, that, that's been helpful. Um, uh, Barna, Barna Research Group started a, a podcast, I think right at the start of COVID called Church Pulse Weekly. Uh, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that's said on that podcast. Much of it I agree with, some of it I, I disagree, but every single minute I listen to it, it gives me food for thought. And mm. they're, being, they're very specific to the moment that we are in um, and, and talking about the challenges that church leaders face. So I, I've found that incredibly helpful. Um, I, uh, I'm going through uh, my friend Todd Bolsinger, who's down at Fuller Seminary, is an author. Um, he, uh, 
he wrote a book several years ago called Canoeing the Mountains. This was long before COVID, um, a book called Canoeing the Mountains that's all about leading through change and leading in particularly through change that's unexpected. So he wrote it before So 2020. COVID. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. yeah, he wrote it like in 2016 or 17 or something, but it's so timely. So I'm going through that book again with our pastoral staff here at our church and that's a, that book's been a game changer for me. And, and I'm, um, it's been interesting to read it again in light of COVID. Uh, so there you go. Those are a couple of hopefully practical resources that might be helpful to you. Awesome. Well, thank you. And, you know, thank you for being faithful to even do the research and the thinking and following that pull in your heart when it comes to this topic. And thank you for going through the pain and anguish of releasing the book into the world in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and then for taking the time to be with us here today. Awesome. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I was honored and, and so happy to do it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We covered a lot in this conversation. So if you want to go deeper into this topic, you'll want to pick up Jay's book, Analog Church. You'll find a link to that along with the other resources mentioned in our show notes. And as always, our team at Fellowship Pacific is here to serve you. To find out more about who we are and how we can support you, visit our website at www.fedpacific.ca.